Okay, we are going to jump back into Colossians, talking about Christ being supreme. And today is called Christ is More Than Enough. So open your Bible, pull out Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to look specifically at just uh, a few verses. But you'll find out pretty quickly that these verses, even though they're few, it's a large section of Scripture. And so I'm trying to help boil it down for you. And in the next 35 minutes, I want to do exactly that. But first, what I need you to do is something we've been doing, and I do like it because it does help make sure that at the very least you have a chance to understand the fuller context of what's taking place. So what I want you to do as you have your Bible in front of you is to read Colossians chapter 2. Spend time reading Colossians chapter 2, and I'll give you about three or four minutes to do that. Colossians chapter 2, ready, go. Right, about one more minute to finish reading Colossians chapter 2. All right, thanks so much for doing that. I wanted to give you an opportunity to really see what Paul is doing here. And as we're making our way through Colossians, it's really not hard to see what he's trying to convey. But I thought I might be able to better illustrate this to you with something that you might know a little bit about. Have you guys ever flown before? How many of you guys, give me some hands. I could see some of you. Give me some hands. How many of you guys have actually flown before in your lives? 
Um, has anyone, can you keep your hands up if you have flown first class? Okay, a few of you, amazing. Okay, so here's the thing. You guys know that there's a pretty substantial difference between coach and first class, right? Well, I, I've been getting into this guy named Sam Chewy lately. And Sam Chewy is a YouTuber who is also an aviation blogger. He, he's really kind of an aviation nut, but part of his thing is that he, he travels around the world flying some of the best airliners and experiencing some of the coolest and neat, uh, I guess neatest, <laughs> awesomest uh, first class experiences, including one of the most exclusive and expensive that Eddie had A380, which is the A380 Airbus, which travels from New York to Mumbai. Now, the A380 is the largest uh, passenger uh, airplane available right now. In fact, you can see them all over the place at LAX. If you ever go there to watch the planes land, they're massive. They're beasts in the sky. Well, the Etihad is known for their luxurious airliners because they have something called the residence. Now, let me show you. I'm going to have video playing, but the audio is going to be coming from me. The residence is an exclusive Eddie had experience where they give you your own concierge. You're driven to and from the airport to an exclusive uh, private entrance. Not only that, you have a butler with you the entire time. You have a butler taking care of you. Here is your cabin. Two massive leather seats, which recline, a 32-inch screen, a welcome package. You have everything at your disposal. This is a massive compartment here. And if that weren't enough, it goes even more than that because this butler here takes care of all of your needs. This is a 15-hour flight. Of course, they're feeding you on the best possible china and, and uh, crystal available. And you, you can see here in the, in the image, these guys are really living it up. They give you a little itty-bitty food, which is supposed to be really good. And you're served like a, a hotel, a five-star hotel in the sky, essentially. Well, if this weren't enough, uh, you also have a a private room that features a double bed with a private bathroom and shower, a shower, a private bathroom and shower in the sky, flying 30,000 feet in the air. This is amazing. And not only that, if you want, you can have breakfast in bed. Like this person is paid to meet your every need in the sky. This is amazing. I mean, I, I, I could never do this and ever go back to life as it was before. And I don't think you could either. And I think you can understand why, but this is the premier first class experience. This is called the residence for the, uh, with the Etihad airlines. If you ever want to give me a gift and you, this is it, I, I would totally be okay with doing that. Please. I would accept it in a heartbeat. And here's all that would cost. You might be thinking, well, how much pastor Rod would that cost you? And you would say, well, that's gotta be upward of five or $10,000. Right. And you would be correct, except you would be about $20,000 off. $38,000 for a one-way ticket from New York to, uh, to Mumbai with Etihad in the first-class residence suite will cost you $38,000. Amazing. Amazing. So here's the problem, though. There's also a coach. <laughs> There's a coach to this same airliner. In fact, this is a picture of the coach. The coach, I mean, it's still nice, right? It still looks inviting and it's open, but nowhere near the experience that you're going to get when you fly first class with these guys. You're not going to get a bedroom or a private shower. You're not going to have anything like this. So let me ask you just a silly question here. Which would you want? Would you want this or would you want this? I mean, just look how roomy that is. I mean, I, 
I'm looking at this and I'm being reminded of the painful experiences that I have on air, airplanes. And I'm not that big of a guy, but I can imagine for people, you know, super tall, like Dave Averill or uh, I guess Dave Averill's the tallest guy I know, I think. Like Dave Averill, can you imagine Dave Averill on an airplane? His knees are probably in his neck the whole time. Probably looks a lot like this. Would you want this or would you want this? Would you want your own private butler who brings you a five-star meal? Or would you want something a little closer to this where you can barely fit into the bathroom in the, in the airplane? Or would you want something like this with a full-size bathroom and a, and a shower, a full-size shower that you can step into with warm water in the middle of your flight? And perhaps you're on a particularly long flight. Would you not want something like this, a full-size bed that you can sleep in the entire time? All the while having someone bring you breakfast or lunch or dinner in bed. And you'll notice that this thing here, they, they pulled the shades down. They've got everything. It's an obvious answer, but here's the challenge. Here's the problem. Most people, most people, if they're in their minds, you know, their right mind is going to say, I want first class any day. But you're ruined if you ever take first class, right? You're ruined. You're, you're never going to want to go back to coach. Coach is terrible. It's a terrible place to be, but you're ruined. Unfortunately, that's not how it works in the Christian life. It's kind of like in our, in our spiritual lives, we are given first class access, spiritually speaking, to the, the, the most exclusive and preeminent airline in the world, you know, uh, Christ Airlines. <laughs> and we got first class access. And yet so many people are tempted to go sit in coach. The spiritual coach of the plane, I guess is going to, this metaphor breaks down pretty quickly, but sitting in spiritual coach, when you have first class access at all times, the inexhaustible riches of Christ available to you. And yet so many people decide, I want to fly in coach and be cramped in a seat, sitting next to a big sweaty, hairy guy that's sleeping on my shoulder. That doesn't sound too exciting, but see, here's the problem. Often that is the case. That's why this sermon is called Christ is more than enough because for some Christians, it's not enough for them. I mean, they start looking at the other grass and saying, well, that grass over there looks greener. This person looks like they have it better. This Buddhist seems like they're doing better off. You know, this person who's, you know, a legalist, it seems like they're doing a better job than me. That the Jehovah's Witnesses seem like they're doing more spiritual activity than I am. The Mormons seem like they're happier than me. This, you know, my friend who's a, who's a Buddhist, he seems like he's got more presence and calmness than I do. And the Christian can easily start looking at the grass as greener on the other side, meanwhile, forgetting the first class preeminent access they have in Christ. We have more than enough in Christ, but human nature still goes to seek after things which replaces Christ. And so this text is for us because Paul is going to remind us that we have all that we need in Christ and so much more. And if we were to follow Christ appropriately, if we follow him rightly, we will be able to experience Christianity as it was meant to be. The first class, I don't want to say luxurious experience of being a Christian. Now, of course, you know, it's not going to look like first class in Eddie had, but it will be a first class ex spiritual experience because this is what God has designed for us. There's no other. This is the only way to himself and it's through Jesus. So let's look at this Colossians chapter two, starting at verses six and seven. This is a classic text for Colossians. And by the way, this is probably, most people agree, this is probably the governing sentence or two that makes Colossians fit together. Paul writes to the Colossian church in order to encourage them to do this very thing. These are probably the key verses of Colossians, if you're going to memorize anything. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, after developing this entire argument about who Christ is, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The whole purpose that Paul writes, he starts his, this, whole, uh, this whole area in Colossians chapter 115, where he talks about the preeminence of Christ. And he says, since you have Christ, walk in Christ, live in Christ. Therefore, be in Christ. Show, show yourself to be a true disciple of Christ. Don't walk away from him. Don't walk in front of him. Don't walk behind him. Walk in him. Have your whole life oriented by his life and his word, essentially. Paul says, he uses a term that is walking him. You ever thought about that? We talk about the Christian walk and we get it from texts like this, which describe the Christian life as a walk and not as a run, not as a jog, not as a car ride. It's a walk. It's slow. It's progressive. It's saying it's going in the same direction. It's a it's something that is slow, painfully slow often, but part of how the Christian life is meant to be lived. He says, walk in him, which is another way. I like the way the NIV says it. Continue to live your lives in him. A walk signifying your life. Live your life in Christ. And how are you to do that? You're to be being rooted up or being rooted in him, being built up in him, being established in him, and then being overflowing in gratitude. That's the way the Christian life is supposed to look. Now, here's the thing. You might notice in these verses here, it says here, you're rooted and built up in him and established in him. Uh, those are passive. Those are passively stated. They're not active verbs for us. They're not, hey, go, go be rooted, go be built up, go be established. They're the things that happen as a result of walking in the Christian life. As we walk in Christ, we are being rooted and we are being built up and we are being established in him. The only one that is active for us is the abounding and thanksgiving. So let's explore that. We're going to look together at the first, these first two verses and understand what it means to have your whole life oriented around Christ. I put it like this. Number one, you need to devote your life to discipleship. There ought to be a clear evidence in your life that everything in you and about you is rotating around the orbit of Christ. Uh, Christ can compels and controls your language, your thoughts, your actions. Your entire life is devoted to discipleship. Another word that you might use is sanctified. You're set apart for Christ. You are rooted in him, built up in him. You're living in him. This is a whole life endeavor. Someone once said, how do you know if someone is in CrossFit? And they said, well, don't worry. They'll tell you. <laughs> CrossFitters are pretty excitable people. Uh, I don't know anyone personally. But actually, I do know somebody. <laughs> and that's true. I do know somebody. And they told me they're in CrossFit. That's so funny because I wasn't thinking about that as I brought up the joke, but how do you know someone's a CrossFit? Don't worry, they'll tell you. CrossFitters are fanatics, right? If you know any of them, they, they can be excited about that because their whole life has been radically changed by this new workout program. I've even read articles that suggest that CrossFitters are into this, not because um, it gives them physical health, although it does do that, but it provides them a community. It really is in many ways replacing the church. They have community and friendship and deep bonds that are built in this place. So CrossFitters are excited by this. Their, their, uh, their first rule about CrossFit is uh, talk nonstop about CrossFit. In fact, as you see here, CrossFit is a way of life, this person says. You eat well, you train hard, you push yourself. It teaches you so much about yourself. CrossFit is not just an exercise or an activity. This is a way of life. It's a way of, it's a philosophy of living. And at CrossFitters, again, they have this mentality because they're excited about what CrossFit has done for them. Oh, look, look at that picture. Remember that picture from last week? I thought I'd just remind you about that. Crossfitters also say things like this. <laughs> For some of us, it's more than just CrossFit. It's one of the best things in life we've discovered, and we are proud to be part of it. Listen to what this guy is saying. CrossFit is not just an activity. It's one of the best things in life, 
and we're proud to be part of this movement. Here's another, another graphic that kind of symbolizes what I'm trying to get at here. I don't just do CrossFit. I believe in working hard, eating clean, attaining my goals, striving to get better, show up when I'm tired. I leave it all at the box. CrossFit is a community. CrossFit is a way of life. Again, reinforcing the idea here that CrossFitters get something that Christians often miss is that Christianity is meant to be comprehensively controlling every aspect of our lives. That's what discipleship is. CrossFitters know discipleship. They don't know discipleship as Christians, but they know it in terms of giving themselves fully to something that controls every other aspect of their lives. That's what Paul is getting at here. Therefore, as you have received Christ, as you became a Christian, now live in this truth, live in this reality. You join CrossFit, eat well, sleep well, train hard. Doesn't matter if you're tired, doesn't matter if you're hungry, doesn't matter if you're cranky, go do this thing because it's who you are. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. It's not just what you do. That's the point that Paul is getting at here. So let me draw a couple points. Like a tree, we're to be daily drawing strength from Christ. That's the idea that you have in verse six here. He says, uh, uh, he says, therefore, as you've received Christ, so walk in him, rooted, rooted. The idea there is intentional, that we're rooted in Christ. Like trees, we're planted by the streams of living water and we're drawing resources from him on an ongoing basis. Those are the kind of things that, uh, that Christians do. Every single day we need Christ. It's not days that we're feeling happy or sad or in the middle. Every day, it does not matter the feeling. Psalm chapter one reminds us of this. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Here, here we go. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. That is the testimony of the Christian who is planted and rooted in Christ. He's drawing strength from Christ. She's learning, uh, learning from his word. And therefore, every single day of his and her life, it's a continual growing. It's not always good. It's not always pleasant. There are storms. There's tossing. There's, there's everything. But the roots go deep. And therefore, this tree is constantly surviving no matter what the season is. You guys might remember that recently we had a lot of rain in our area and you saw a lot of felled trees. There was, it was an ongoing thing where you kind of drive around Mission Viejo or even a lot of places in South Orange County. You see these massive trees that fell. One of the reasons these massive trees fell is because of root rot. Their roots, even though they had them, didn't go deep. They were disintegrated. They were, uh, they were weak and shallow. And so when the, when the soil became un, unstable, they fell easily, no matter how big the tree appeared to be. Well, it doesn't appear to be the tree was big, but the idea here is roots are what's going to enable you to withstand the storms of life. You don't want to be like a tree in Mission Viejo that falls. You want to be like the tree that endures because it's grounded and planted in Christ, therefore constantly healthy and growing, rooted and built up. Second, that second aspect there, verse seven, we're rooted and we're built up. So like a tree, we're drawing strength from Christ, but like a building, we want to ensure our life is up to code. We want to ensure that our lives are not dilapidated. We want to ensure that as we're, as we're living our lives in Christ, that we're being built up in him. So we have roots that are going down, and now we have buildings that are going up. You get the idea here. We're planting ourselves, and we're growing, not ourselves, but we're being grown by Christ. One of the things that my family and I like to do is uh, when we have vacations, we like to go to Big Bear. There's one of, our, one of our regular spots. And because we take the long way around, we pass through the Lucerne Valley. You guys know that area? The Lucerne Valley is kind of on the back end of Big Bear. So you, you travel, uh, you, you take the, uh, the 15, and then you hit the 18. You see the 18, the 18 takes you all the way into Big Bear. Um, that's a less windy path, and so we'll, we'll do that. It takes us a lot longer to get to Big Bear, but it's worth it for us because we're not sick. Well, the Lucerne Valley, one of my favorite places to drive through, is, is so much fun because 
this very reason. There's a lot of abandoned homes and, uh, and buildings there, which just, I don't know why they intrigue me. I've always wanted to stop and take photos because they're so, they just draw you in. There's something about their, their dilapidatedness that makes you excited. One of the places I love passing is the Ace Motel. Apparently, this used to be a pop-in spot at one point in time. It was well attended. It had great amenities, all, this, all the things that they said, but they closed it down uh, because I guess they weren't getting along a lot of business in the Lucerne County. Anyway, all that says, all that to say is that we often can be like a dilapidated building. We're not cared for. We're not being, we're not being attentive to the needs. And so our lives are overgrown. You see, even the trees are big and bushy. They need to be they need to be cared for. The land itself is, is polluted. It's, it's, it's not clean. It's dirty. Our lives are very similar. If we're going to grow up in the Christ, we have to make sure that we're living our lives being aware. Okay, am I doing life right, God? Am I ensuring that my life is up to code? Am I doing what you are pleased with? Or am I going my own path? Like a tree, we need to daily draw strength from Christ. Like a building, we need to, be, uh, we need to make sure that our lives are living up to code. We don't want our spiritual lives looking like Lucerne County. We need real effort and energy to give maintenance to our spiritual lives. In fact, to put it in a different way, our lives should really have signs that always say under construction. If we ever give up construction in our lives, that's when our lives continue to, to tank and to make compromises and to allow sin to enter into our lives. Our lives should be under construction constantly. Like a disciple, we ought to stay committed to the teacher uh, Paul says that we're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, established in the faith. Uh, the idea this is where we get the idea of con, uh, confirmation. Uh, people are confirmed by being established in the faith. It's like uh, when, when Daniel-san devoted himself to Mr. Miyagi's teachings. At one point, Daniel-san got, you know, he got frustrated. He was going to throw in the towel, but then he realized that Mr. Miyagi wasn't just a crazed old man. He, there was a method to his madness, and suddenly he knew karate. In the same way, if Daniel had given up, there would be no Karate Kid 1, 2, or 3, and that would mean some of the 80s classics of the day would never have happened. So thankful Daniel-san stayed in the fight and stayed with Mr. Miyagi. So it is with our relationship with Christ that if we throw up or you know, give up halfway and, and throw in the towel, we're not going to experience the kind of life that God has for us. Our, 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 if we're going to stay established in the faith, that means that we're committing week in and week out. No matter what's happening in our lives, Christ is always number one for us. Like a disciple, stay committed to the teacher. We're committed to Christ uh, because of what he's done for us. Uh, John 15, 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There is a direct correlation between our obedience to his commandments and our love for him. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. If we don't love him, we will shut them off. And that really does bring us to this next point here. If, uh, like an heir to the throne, we're overflowing with gratitude. Uh, Christ has brought us into his kingdom. Christ has given everything to us. We are first-class passengers on the, the airplane of life because of what Christ has done for us. He bought the ticket for us. He prepared everything. And that means our lives ought to be easily, easily able to express themselves in gratitude. It's like, a, like someone carrying a bowl of water. Um, if, someone, if, if someone knocks someone with that bowl of water, they're probably going to spill, spill out. Uh, in a similar sense, 
when your life gets jostled, what's pouring out of your mouth? Is it complaints or is it gratitude? When someone jostles you the wrong way and you're, you're, you're spilling out words and phrases, what does your life spill out? Scripture says the mark of the Christian is that they are abounding, overflowing with gratitude. Why? You have nothing to complain about because every day of your life, you realize you're getting so much better than what you deserve that it would be utter foolishness to complain. Uh, to devote your life to discipleship is to be a man or woman of gratitude. Ask yourself this question. What does my mouth tell about people, tell, tell people around me about my life with Christ that I am supremely contented in him. And I realize what I've been given or that I'm entitled. And I feel like I deserve more than what I'm getting. The Christian who is jostled spills out Thanksgiving. Why you're an heir to the throne. There's nothing for you to complain about. This is what it looks like to be a, to be a, a Christian who is devoted to discipleship. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Colossians chapter two, verses eight through 12. We also get a sense of, of, of our discipleship to Christ, but it's not always easy. Um, even in a first class flight, I'm sure there are times when turbulence happens. Uh, it's not just the coach passengers who feel the turbulence, the Christians in first class also feel that. And so what we're going to see in these next few verses is Paul is looking to the, the looking to the, uh, you know, the forecast and saying, Hey guys, turbulence is on the way. And here's, I need to prepare for that. Look at Colossians chapter two, verses eight through 12 with me. He says this, and this is the commanding imperative. He says, see to it. And the C is the imperative here. See to it that no one takes you captive. How? Well, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says that there are competing forces working against you. This is the turbulence. He says that there's philosophy and empty deceit. There's teaching. There's a way of life where there are, there are smart sounding teachers and, and wise sounding teachers who are going to come after you with bad teaching. And you need to be aware of this. They're going to do it according to human tradition, according to uh, different spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He goes on to say in verses, uh, uh, 10, uh, 10 through 12 or nine through 12, rather. He says, for in him, Christ, in him, Christ is the whole fullness of deity. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, remember, I told you Christ is God. I'm reminding you of that. Verse 10, and you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Every authority that exists, Paul says, is under Christ's uh, rule and authority. Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the ruler of every authority ever for all time. Verse 11, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, remember, go back to this, the, the commanding imperative here. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. I want you to follow Christ and make sure no one takes you captive because Christ, he says, is better than everyone else that you can possibly follow. Christ has better plans, better instructions. Why? Because he's God. He knows you better. He knows life better because he's God. In other words, don't look for the grass is greener on the other side. It's not greener, he says. Look to Christ and follow him. And if you, if you want to do that right, that means you have to be careful. See to it. No one takes you captive. How can you practically do this? Well, let me try to distill it for you. This is very similar to last week's point number two, but here's point number two this week. Filter all inputs through the scriptures. If you're going to see to it that no one takes you captive, 
and make sure that it's according to Christ that you're living, you have to have have to have to become a student of the word and amp it up more than you ever have. What a great time to do that. So much time available to you right now. Don't miss this opportunity. Jump into it. Jump into it. Now you guys may not know this, but one of my favorite uh, guilty pleasures is a kid's cereal by the name of Fruity Pebbles. I love Fruity Pebbles. They're the most amazing cereal. I mean, I get these hankering. Said just like, I gotta have fruity pebbles. I gotta have my fruity pebbles. Um, and it's not all the time. It's not all. So don't buy me boxes of fruity pebbles. If you're gonna buy me anything, the Eddie had residence flight from New York to Mumbai. I'll take that one. Fruity pebbles. Just kidding. Uh, fruity pebbles is a secret love for me. One of the things I love about fruity pebbles is not just their synthetic, not real flavors and their very bright colors, is that when you pour that milk in the bowl. And, and the fruity pebbles, they get to that point of just enough soggy and just enough crunchy where it's the texture is perfect in your mouth. Um, there also comes a point where it's just terrible and it leaves that filmy yuck on your, on your tongue that just doesn't go away. But the best part, I think, of the fruity pebble experience is the last part where the, the milk tastes like fruity pebbles. The, the milk has absorbed all the fruity pebble goodness. And now that, that sweet, delicious cow juice becomes all the more tasty because it has been, has been uh, tainted, I guess. It has been infected, influenced by the fruity pebbles. <laughs> okay, follow me here. Your life has to be like fruity pebbles and milk. <laughs> the fruity pebbles of scripture have to soak in your milky life and change the flavor of your life. <laughs> I'm ashamed of that illustration. I don't care. I like it. I'm still going to use it. Your life, your milky life has to absorb the flavor of the scriptures. That milk, after it has been, and it's been exposed to the fruity pebbles, can no longer go back to milk as it was before. Every part of the milk is now saturated with the fruity pebble goodness, and now it tastes like fruity pebbles, even if there's not a fruity pebble in it. Your life ought to taste like scripture. Your life ought to have this comprehensive effect that the scriptures are filtering through you and changing the flavor of who you are. Paul again says, see to it, no one takes you captive. There's several dangers out there. There's several ways people can take you captive. And he said, don't let that happen. Make sure that you know Christ and his word so well that no one can kidnap you. No one should be able to steal you away. And the only way you can be sure of that is by making sure that you know the word of God. I remember being in elementary school and being taught by the teachers how to make sure that you don't get kidnapped. And one of the ways that you were supposed to avoid getting kidnapped is if the person is driving towards you, you run the other direction. You're supposed to yell and scream really loudly and kick the guy in the groin if it's a guy, I guess. Um, and only one time did I almost have to use that. It's a, it's a crazy story, and someday I'm sure it'll come out in one of my sermons, but one time I almost had to use it, but it wasn't in elementary school. Get this, guys. It was in high school. Okay, I don't have time to tell you the story. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you guys later. I promise. Okay, so don't get kidnapped, Paul says, and he says, I guess one way you can avoid getting kidnapped, if you're, if you're trying to be practical now, you can have pepper spray, you can have a gun or a knife or something, but what better weapon than the sword of the spirit spiritually, right? What better weapon than the sword of the spirit? So if you're going to make sure that you are not getting kidnapped, you have to recognize that skillful application, knowing the word is hard work. It's not easy. If you're reading the DBR with us and you're doing the daily devotional, we're, we're struggling through some of the difficulties of scripture. Some of the heroes turn out to be anti-heroes. Some of the people we're looking up to, like King David, who was a man after God's own heart, ends up not being as stellar as we thought he was. It's not easy to understand the word and apply it well. It's skillful application. Skills take work. 
And you have to learn, like Biola's uh, tagline, you have to learn to think biblically about everything. And that really is the practice, young person. If you want to learn to skillfully apply scripture, start thinking biblically about everything. The movies you watch, um, the, the, the TV shows that you watch, the songs that you listen to, the books that you read, uh, the press conferences that you're hearing from our politicians, the policies that are being made, your job is to learn to think biblically about everything. In other words, one question you can ask is, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? What does the Bible say? And here, here's an honest question. Here's an honest question I want you to think about. Um, here's a good example. Today's day and age, uh, movies are really excited about going into a direction of painting women as the heroines of the story. You know, the women's are uh, the women's, the ladies are the ones who come in, save the day. They're saving the guys who are too weak or too, you know, whatever to save the day. It's the ladies. You got a captain Marvel, which she's always been around, but you have a, you have a, what's her face from the star Wars trilogy, the new one. Um, you get Ray. That's her name. Ray. You have, you have ladies taking the place of forefront heroism. Um, and in a lot of ways, masculinity fighting and beating up the bad guys. What does the Bible say about that? How does the Bible view ladies going on to the front lines? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? These are the kind of questions that you need to explore and think about because it's not just something that's interesting to think about. These have real effects on our lives and on our culture around us. And unless we're thinking biblically about what God has said about the world around us, we're never going to stand a chance against empty philosophy or empty deceit and the philosophies that it costs us. And here's another factor. Discipline, excuse me, discernment must be trained by constant practice. I've already alluded to this, but discipline, discernment must be trained by constant practice. This is Hebrews chapter five, verses 13 and 14. It says this, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is one of the reasons why in your small groups, I'm trying to help you guys practice discernment by introducing bad teaching to you. I'd rather you learn it here to learn how to defend against it rather than being caught off guard in your university setting. Paul says, see to it. No one takes you captive. See to it. Make sure no one takes you all captive. That you in Colossians 2.8 is a plural you. In other words, I think what he's getting at is that discernment also happens in the safety of community. Again, this is why small groups are talking about this. We want to make sure that you practice discernment constantly. We want to make sure that you learn that skillful application can be done, but it's hard. We also want to learn that there's safety in numbers. The body of Christ is meant to work together in order to come to a common understanding of what Christ has taught. That's why, again, this Wednesday, I'm going to have you guys do this again with some of the graphics that you learned about last week. Now, if you and your leaders went through this, I hope that was a helpful exercise, but you're going to do it again. You're going to look at a different graphic this time. This is the same guy who was teaching the last week. This guy, or not teaching, the same guy who I gave you the graphic from last week. He's got bad teaching. And the problem with this guy is that he's, he's giving you a little bit of truth and a lot of untruth. He's twisting the scriptures to his own ends. And therefore, your job is to say, how can I make sure that I don't fall into the trap of his false teaching? That's what Paul is trying to guard against for the Colossians. And he's warning you. <laughs> warning, don't listen to any man that tells you baptism or obeying the Ten Commandments is not necessary for salvation. Young person, hear me out. Baptism and obeying the Ten Commandments is not necessary for salvation. In other words, this guy's telling you to not listen to me. Who's telling you the truth? I would ask you, and a better question is, what does the Bible honestly teach? 
What does the Bible teach? Now, I guess you could nuance baptism and the Ten Commandments and say a real Christian is going to be baptized and a real Christian is going to submit to the Ten Commandments. I mean, in, in a very, in a principled stance anyway, but you can't say that they're necessary for salvation. Do you know how to defend against this young person? Do you know how to defend against it? You're going to spend some time on this this coming week in small groups, and I hope you'll find that helpful. Your leaders already know about this. Hopefully, this will be a great conversation for you. We're doing this in community because that's how discernment best happens. And then again, Paul is saying, biblical Christ is superior to all others. He says, don't spend time uh, listening to empty deceits and philosophy. He says, instead, he says, instead, you should listen to what is according to Christ. Why? Because Christ is better than any other system of thought you're going to get into. In fact, that's really the whole point he develops in this next section. The next section, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, he closes it off and he says this, and you, you all who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Christ has triumphed over every rule and every authority. Sin and death no longer have dominion. He's canceled your sin and debt. He has made you alive together with Christ by circumcising your heart, not your flesh. He has done the impossible. Why look at the other people who are promoting legalism? Why look at these other sects of Christianity who are suggesting that the only way to be a true Christian is to have mystical experiences or to eat certain foods or to celebrate certain holidays? In other words, he's trying to say, beware the bait and switch of legalism. Don't look at legalism and just be attracted to it. He says, think about this. You're, 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 You're leaving salvation in Christ in order to follow a legalistic set of rules. Don't follow that. Follow Christ. Beware the bait and switch of legalism. Now, I want to be quick with you here and and help you define legalism properly. Though the word is thrown around, it's kind of a catch-all term. And I understand uh, you probably have heard this before, but legalism exists when people attempt to be righteous in God's sight by good works. That is strictly speaking what legalism is. Um, They're using good works to make themselves righteous before God. And they can also be legalists if they're adding laws to God's law. So you're a legalist if you're trying to be righteous before God by being obedient to the law, or you're a legalist if you're trying to add man-made laws to God's law. Those are uh, That's legalism in a nutshell. So therefore, uh, what exactly is, why is legalism attractive? Why would it be anything some, that something, something someone would want to do? It's because it makes promises. Legalism uh, simplifies your Christian life. Legalism uh, says, hey, you know, if you want to be right with God, you want to be sure that you're right with God, follow these commandments. Obey the Ten Commandments, get baptized, make sure that you keep the Jewish festivals and feasts. That's what, that's what this false teacher is doing, uh, this local false teacher. That's exactly what he's saying. If you want to be assured that you're right with God, follow these commandments. Of course, that falls flat because if, if, a, if obedience to the law is what makes you right with God. How much can you ever obey the law to be 100% sure that you're right with God? If you're constantly falling and sinning and falling short of the glory of God, how can you ever trust the law to make you right with God? And the answer is you can't. Legalism suggests that you can be close to God because you can, hey, if you you follow these laws, you're going to experience a closeness with God that you've never experienced before. It's simple, follow these commandments and you'll be a better Christian. And of course it falls in that too. 
because who wants to follow a God who is understood to be this legalistic taskmaster, always calling you out on your, on your shortcomings. Whereas in Christ, he says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Follow me and I will give you rest for your souls. Legalism can't do that. Really, young person, the thing I need you to know without a shadow of a doubt is the gospel alone is the thing that motivates and enables truly righteous living. And that's why Paul goes through great pains to teach it in these last few verses. He's rehearsing it for them. They know it, but he's rehearsing it so that they will cling to this truth that God saved you from sin and death. He nailed all of your sin to the cross. Jesus was condemned in your place. How can that not change and melt a hard heart? And that's the whole point. If a Christian, if someone understands the gospel, they're going to do right things, not because they feel this obligation where if I don't do it, God's going to be angry at me. It's, man, I am so grateful. My faith is so in Christ. My heart is so full for what this God has done for me. How could I not be obedient? How could I not love the God who gave so much for me? How can I not submit and surrender to the, to the king of the world who died in my place that I might live? What an incredible story. What an incredible God. I want to surrender to him. My heart has been changed. My, my heart, which was hard and stony, is melted, and now I want to follow that God. Legalism, although it sounds attractive initially, can never deliver the promises that it makes. It can never satisfy God's righteous wrath. It's never enough. It is a bait-and-switch trick that is meant to deceive you into sending yourself to hell. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I'll end with this. He says, God's divine power... Uh, Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is the blessing of being in Christ, that through him we have all that we need. Christ is more than enough. You don't need uh, an external list of rules. You don't need to follow a certain teacher who says, follow this feast and, and obey the Ten Commandments and be sure that you get baptized to be saved. The, the gospel is amazing, young person, and this is what makes it amazing that he's given us these free gifts in Christ. And now from our salvation, we obey. What an incredible blessing. Christ indeed is supreme. And with that, let me pray for you guys and I will let you guys go. God, thanks so much for making yourself clearly supreme to all these other systems. God, it is the first class experience to be in Christ and surely nothing else compares. Please help us to treasure and love Christ and please help us to fight against legalism. We only talked about one type of legalism, God, but it's all over the place. It's out there. So many people are ensnared by legalistic rules and systems. And we get a chance again this coming Wednesday to, to even think through how to biblically defend against just one of those false teachers in our area. God, thank you so much for the gospel that by the, the grace and kindness of Jesus Christ, we are now made right with you, fully acceptable by you, uh, through what Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf. We thank you for that gift. We pray God help us to walk away, not uh, forgetting this quickly, but living in it as Paul encourages to walk in Christ, to be rooted and built up in him and established in our faith and abounding in thanksgiving. Let this be the reality for us as we live out our discipleship uh, for Christ and through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.